Thanks for listening to the Sciatica podcast. I'm Tom Jessen. Today I'm talking to Professor Raymond Ostello. Raymond Ostello is Professor of Evidence-Based Physiotherapy. He is the Program Director of the Musculoskeletal Health Program of the Amsterdam Movement Sciences Research Institute, and he is leading the Musculoskeletal Research Section of the Department of Health Sciences at VU University Amsterdam. A couple of things to say before we get started. Uh, The sound quality of this podcast has one or two issues. Uh, One minor issue is that Raymond, while Raymond is talking, we lose connection once or twice. It actually doesn't end up being too much of a problem. He drops out for one or two seconds and you can still make out what he's saying. So that's fine. The bigger problem is entirely my fault. And it's that when we recorded our conversation on Zoom, I forgot to change the uh, receiving microphone on my computer to my fancy microphone. And we actually recorded the first half of the whole conversation with me talking into my laptop microphone, which was about two feet away and behind me. So it sounds crap. Uh, completely amateurish mistake. I can only apologize, uh, but rest assured, I hardly speak at all, actually, just one or two questions. And I notice, I think, about 20 minutes in or so and fix that. So apologies, but do bear with it. Raymond sounds great, and he's got a lot of interesting things to say. So I hope you enjoy the podcast. Raymond Ostello. Raymond, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast. You're welcome. Thank you for the invitation. And I'm looking forward to talking about how you see the evidence base in general, but obviously in particular surrounding sciatica. You've recently written a fabulous summary. Um, hopefully we can go over that and try to maybe map out the areas where things are certain and we know stuff and the areas where things are a lot less certain we don't know stuff. And I'm just looking forward to getting an insight into how you, um, yeah, how you see the evidence base. So with that in mind, my first question is maybe a bit of a funny one, we'll see, which is, do you have a picture in your mind's eye of what the evidence base or what the literature is? Are there any analogies that you come back to, any sort of visual images? How do you see all that literature? Whoa. (laughs) Well, yeah, <laughs> that, that's an indeed an unexpected opener. Um, but thinking about it, maybe it's a bit like a, a forest where you can see that there is some light at the end, but there is no clear path towards the end. Maybe, okay. some, maybe something like that. <laughs> because I think we, we, we do know some stuff uh, but there is also uh, maybe actually a lot of stuff that we are not too sure about. Um, um, but at the same time, at the same time, it's also not that we don't know anything. Okay, so it's it's a forest, and the light is this kind of knowledge that we're hoping to move towards, and <laughs> we're kind of getting there slowly, slowly but surely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's what I. 
without having given this question really much thought, that's, I think, the best analogy I can come up with now. Well, that's interesting because I think that that's kind of one of the insights I wanted to get for, for how you see things. And do you feel like um, over time, slowly but surely, we're, we're moving towards that light and we're getting, we're getting more information? Um, yeah, I, I, I certainly think that, that, that we gain more insight. I mean, when I was trained as a physio, which is not that long ago, actually, but still, uh, then, I mean, we were taught that there were certain lying positions uh, that were good for patients with sciatica, and that those were sometimes even bad regimes or resting regimes in certain positions in the bed for sometimes two, three, four weeks even. And I, I, I think if you then take that perspective and look at the, the, the broader picture in terms of treatment for sciatica nowadays, you see that it really kind of changed at this whole movement towards more activity, reassuring the patient, um, uh, promoting uh, normal activities in daily life, that, that then you can really see that there is a big change. And at the same time, indeed, those are, to me, these are the biggest steps. Uh, and at the same time, indeed, over the last maybe couple of years, we haven't gained so much uh, new insights, I would say. Um, so at, 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 at a short, more short-term period, I think we kind of uh, didn't have too much progress. But mm. again, when you look at it from a bit of a bit bigger perspective, I think we certainly made progress. Yeah, I agree with that. It's an interesting way to, to think about it. Um, in the long term, we've got a huge amount of information about the things that don't help and, and the things that do. Um, my impression is that, you know, there seems to there's a sense of the evidence, the usefulness of the evidence base starts to kind of reach a, a limit for the clinician in terms of for a sciatica telling you, um, helping you choose amongst all the different treatments. So sometimes a lot of the reviews will say, you know, there's not much difference between whether you do this, that, or the other. What I often wonder when I when I read those and when I when I read the individual trials is. Do you think that that's an accurate um, reflection of reality, if we want to put it like that? Do you think the, the methods that we're using for our trials um, are sensitive enough to pick up differences between treatments, if they do exist? No, that's, that's an intriguing question, because I think there are a couple of issues there. I think, first of all, I still firmly believe that a randomized controlled trial is a very good way if you want to uh, establish whatever kind of causal relationship between an intervention and an outcome. Um, at the same time, indeed, I think that sometimes the way that the RCTs are done and are designed are maybe not so optimal. But then the question is, is that something that you can blame on the RCT or... Mm. Is that something that we could blame on, for example, how we define our populations and how we define our uh, interventions? And what you very often see is this kind of almost shotgun approach in a trial 
where there was a very heterogeneous population and then an intervention that is given is either or very, very strict, which may only help a few people, but not everyone, um, or the treatment regimes, especially in these more pragmatic trials, they accommodate much more liberty, so to speak, in the, in the treatment protocol to adapt the treatment to the individual patient. But then you very often don't really know what the contrast is with, for example, the control usual care, because then the contrast between the control arm and the treatment arm might not be um, uh, as you wished for. <laughs> um, so in that sense, uh, I, I'm still a bit in limbo here, whether, it, whether, whether we know enough to really do a randomized controlled trial, because I also think that there is a kind of optimal timing in a certain field when trials are really helpful. And if we struggle in terms of defining our population, if we struggle still with our diagnosis, then how can we select an appropriate population that we really know that is as at least has some some level of homogeneity so that the treatment also really works and to me especially in sciatica i was kind of um well maybe even shocked when i i read this paper by the australian no both by i mean by the uh, Keel-based group who identified, I, I don't know by the top of my head, but I think it was like some, like 22 definitions of sciatica, which already tells you a story because if you look, for example, at a, at, at, at a simple uh, at, at a simple stuff like a fracture, we know it was a fracture and it's a complete fracture, an incomplete <laughs> fracture, no, and, then, and then it's done. So there are a couple of subgroups maybe, but, th but that's clear. But having 22 definitions of more or less the same type of uh, same population, that already is, I think, illustrated that we don't know too well how to define it and what's going on. And then when you look, because you you asked about the trials, I think then when you look at how those definitions were translated into trials, and that then very often the definition that was used in a trial did not really match the in and exclusion criteria. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, then it really is a problem uh, because then you basically don't know what... We only know, for example, then that we know that we include patients with pain of whatever type into the lag with whatever kind of severity, and then we're going to give them a treatment. But what are you going to treat if you don't know where the pain is coming from whether it's really the nerve root or it's more the disc or that's more much more vague indeed. Um, so and then I think that you maybe might say that indeed the, let's say for the next couple of years, maybe it's much more fruitful to think about more lab-based studies to try to come up with more consensus meetings about this is how we define it. And from that perspective, we're going to do the next studies but also look more at, 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 at really the etiology of the sciatica instead of another shotgun approach, RCT, where we kind of do more or less, you know, where we kind of repeat the same issue over and over again, define a not too homogeneous population, give them a not too strict protocol. And I mean, uh, pr pr I think many people then 
would predict that the outcome would be there is no difference between the two treatment arms and that is also what you see in a lot of these studies. So in that sense, again, I think indeed that the trial itself is a very strong design to establish the causality, but that maybe now in sciatica it's more time to go back to, let's say, back to square one and really rethink the definition and the diagnosis and the etiology in much more detail. That's very interesting um, because uh, if we were to take low back pain, for example, there's a similar sort of debate yeah. where uh, m- many people think that um, we've defined it as, as well as we can within sort of like the, bound- the boundaries of what we can reasonably know and that the trials are telling us that it doesn't particularly matter what you do. And there's another camp that say that we should be working much harder to split the condition up. So it's kind of a lumpers versus splitters type debate. Yeah. And you would see the same thing in, in sciatica, um, which suggests that it's maybe premature to start saying with uh, a high degree of certainty that it doesn't really matter what exercise you do. There may well very well be things out there that we can do specifically, but we just don't have that level of knowledge yet. Yeah, I think when you indeed look at the reviews, and I mean, I, I, I guess for a podcast like this, we shouldn't go into all the technicalities mm-hmm. of how to create the evidence and all the details. But 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 I mean, um, when you look at it at, 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 at a more general level, then these systems, they tell us that on average, the, the, the certainty that we have or the confidence that we can have in these uh, conclusions that we draw that indeed they might change with uh, the next uh, study. That's basically what it comes down to, and that's how they describe it. And then you know indeed that the uncertainty is, is maybe bigger than we hope for, maybe also bigger than you would like to see uh, in clinical practice. Um, but, well, that's what it is. Again, having said that, I think that that that, that still... It is helpful to know that, for example, this absolute rest and that rest also for sciatica, I mean, I think there is some fair evidence that tells us that that is probably not the most effective way to, to deal with the sciatica. And that level of uncertainty based on our current inability to split the condition properly, or just maybe we are able to, we're just not doing it. Do you think that would extend also to interventions like medication and injections? Because my impression of the the recent literature for those is that we have a similar sort of effect where it it doesn't seem like the anti-neuropathic medications are as effective as we thought. There's a recent Cochrane review around um, epidural steroid injections, which was quite pessimistic about the potential of those two. Um, but I always have the same concern as you, which is that perhaps not identifying certain patients, for example, patients with true neuropathic pain, who would benefit no. from these medications. Would, would you share my concern, or do you think there might be some false hope there? No, I share your concern, certainly, because I think especially, probably even more so than a kind of general type of rehabilitation for sciatica, these kind of interventions, injections, medication, 
they really try to tap into a very specific pathological pathway. Um, so, and if that pathological pathway isn't there, or we're not too sure about that, then you can try to kind of break that pathological pathway. But, um, I mean, in epidemiology, we often talk about concurrent pathways to get to a disease. And there might only be a small proportion of people who finally get sciatica that work via that mechanism. And I think that having these interventions that work on very specific mechanisms, uh, that that could be a very good, or, or for me at least, that, that seems a very plausible reason why these kind of interventions are also not overly successful. Because when you look at the way they include patients, it's a kind of similar story. They they include patients based on a very general description, and then they try to target the treatment to a very specific pathological pathway. Mm -hmm. And those patients were not included because of they were, you know, taking the box for that specific pathological pathway. So in that sense, I mean, I, I think I like this term therapeutic validity. And that means I think that indeed the, 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 the protocols and the treatments that we give should be much more aligned to the specific problem that patients have. But we did, I mean, this is not sciatica, this is much more for neck pain, but one of our PhD students, I, I think he did a great review where he looked at spinal manipulation. Um, and then when you look at the working mechanism or the supposed working mechanism of SMT, um, then at least there should be some kind of limitation in the range of motion in the cervical spine or whatever. But in many of the trials that he looked at in his review, patients were solely include, uh, included solely on the fact that they suffered pain. And then you're going to give them SMT. I mean, what do you expect? And that's the same for uh, injection. If there was nothing that you can kind of, if there was no inflammation, why give in a medication or an injection that tries to attack the inflammation? I mean, um, and, and I think we should be much more careful about how we design our studies. And to me, the, the natural next question is, is about how you think about the role of clinical experience or clinical expertise. because. Uh, let's say, for example, I think I'm right in saying the low back pain and sciatica guidelines in the UK are they're preparing to revise them and advise against the use of antineuropathic medications. Um, now, I'm not asking you to comment specifically on, on that issue or, or that evidence, but a lot of clinicians will say that, uh, point out the limitations that we've been pointing out and say, in my experience, I feel like my pattern recognition helps me to identify certain patients who will help, who will be helped by these medications. So how do you feel about the role of clinical experience and expertise to fill the gaps in the evidence? <laughs> I, I think I'm a bit ambiguous there because, first of all, I really think that, I mean, physician, physio, or an anesthesiologist, or doctor, or whatever, those are the people who treat patients, and not the scientific papers. Um, and if you, when you look at an RCT, that gives you a kind of a, you know, broader direction. This is what you should do on average. 
uh, as this more broader picture. How you apply that in clinical practice? I really think you need the clinical expertise there. Um, at the same time, just banging the drum of, yeah, but I know because I have seen this in clinical practice forever, I'm also a little bit skeptical about that because in some of our trials that was in physio, um, we had the same discussions with physio. They said, oh, I know when I see a patient like this or that, I, I, I know that treatment doesn't work or the other way around. If I see a patient with that profile, I know I should be doing that uh, treatment. I should be giving that treatment. And then in some of the trials, we asked the physio. So they were participating in our trials. We were comparing A to B, for example. And then we asked them, so how confident is this? Because now you're going to treat in the, for the study this patient with A. What is the likelihood you think that this patient will recover? Or what's the likelihood for treatment B to be the most beneficial treatment for that patient? On average, physios were not very good at that. Um, so that's my ambiguity, I would say, like, because without, I mean, again, the clinical expertise is very important to apply the, the, the evidence and all wisdom, uh, because, again, you, you can't just throw an RCT at a patient and then say, this is what you should be doing, because there's much more to that than just the RCT. And at the same time, I think also it's good to be a little bit skeptical about clinical expertise as, as the, the, the sole source of, of wisdom <laughs> and how you should treat patients. So I, I really think it's the combination of, of, of these two. That's what you, that's what you need. Mm. And perhaps uh, we need to be more familiar with the, the literature on expertise and, and expert judgment. Um, so sometimes I feel like People take one of those two sides, yeah, too strong enough, um, and we don't really have a good language or a good shared understanding of how to work out or when expert judgment is potentially effective and, and when we should maybe disregard it. Like it seems to be just people default to one or the other all the time. It's a tricky, tricky problem. Yeah, but, but, but what I like about I've been involved in. in, in clinical guidelines, a couple of clinical guidelines on back pain or sciatica. And that's what I like about this methodology of, of, of the, the, the great methodology where you say like, okay, there seems to be strong evidence that this patient should be treated like that. You always see this discussion that you now bring up as soon as the evidence is not so strong. And, and, and again, I think back pain or sciatica, uh, but also I think in neck pain is pretty much the same. We see that there is quite some evidence for kind of the broad direction, but how to exactly then, you know, use that broad direction in this specific patient, very often clinical expertise uh, is important. And also in these guidelines, where we use this methodology of grade, we also indeed very often, it's not just the evidence because then there is the evidence and then the important next step is from evidence to a decision. And then you see that all kind of other considerations are important and that's where the clinical expertise comes in. And I, I, I agree, we need that a lot actually in this field because overall the evidence very often is not too strong for very specific questions that people in clinic have. 
let me sort of change change approach a little bit. And I think maybe we've already touched on this because you mentioned that you feel like we might have to take a step back from from trials. What trial or study, let's say if money or recruitment was no object, there was no problems there, what trial or study would you like to see or would you like to conduct that would tell us most about how to improve care for people with sciatica? I I think also when I was doing the review, I really thought when I was writing these future directions, I really think that... um, when you look at some of the, for example, the cardiovascular field or oncology, there are really a couple of very, very big cohort studies that, you know, included maybe 10,000 people or whatever. Mm. And I think that is really missing uh, for specific uh, back pain or specifically for sciatica. And I, I think that would really be a good idea because then you could also include many more risk factors or prognostic factors at the same time. Because now, you know, we include, for example, and maybe this is a bit too black and white how I put it now, but then we include 100 patients and we think we've got a cohort study. Hmm. But when you talk to some of the real epidemiologists, you know, they laugh about a cohort study of 100 patients because that's not a cohort study, that's, that's a patient series. Uh, so, and if you really got the big numbers, it also offers the opportunity to combine all kinds of risk factors where, uh, you not only look, for example, with these 100 patients on the s- psychological risk factors or the biomechanical risk factors or all kinds of risk factors that are very often studied in isolation because very often you also read then in the limitations of the study or there uh, was a secondary analysis from a trial. But very often these, these big cohort studies are lacking and the cohort studies that are published are very often secondary analysis. And therefore, they're always limited in the, the number of risk factors and the type of risk factors. And also, I think uh, pretty much is also a bit banging on the same term all over again, because then we again look at duration of complaints, severity of complaints at baseline. But I really think we, we should also... Uh, consider uh, these immunological uh, risk factors and then really not just a question of do you sleep well yes or no but really go into that in much more detail like how should we assess such a risk factor and what aspect of maybe sleep disturbance really contributes and because it will not be for everybody that it is a risk factor therefore you need the big numbers to kind of tease out what combination of different risk factors would really enable us to maybe subgroup patients uh, in a better way than we are doing now. So that would really be, let's say, <laughs> for the rest of your career, if you give me the big money, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll try to do my best to come up with this big cohort study where we really measuring all kinds of risk factors from the different domains and also focus on new risk factors and also really first of all think very carefully about what risk factors and how to measure them and then set up a a, a study where we can really study the different risk factors and prognostic factors in combination and would you include inflammatory biomarkers in that study 
Yeah, I would certainly include uh, biomarkers in that study. Um, but they're the, the, the same, what I already said before, I would really think about it carefully, like what biomarkers, because there are many biomarkers uh, that have been already um, you know, described as potentially uh, important, mm -hmm. but also the way how you measure them. And um, that, that is, I think, very important to have a look at that. So that's also what I meant by having this big cohort study that really include the experts in that biomarker field and, you know, get them uh, to work on this cohort for that part, the biomarkers. Uh, because I think it would be very interesting if we know more about that because it also opens up uh, the way for more targeted medication maybe because one of the reasons are probably that a lot of these medication trials or injection trials are not really that positive. It has to do with the fact that it probably targets some of these biomarkers, but many patients you know, will not have these biomarkers in the first place. So I would certainly include them and then again also really think about what specific biomarkers and also when to measure them, when in the process, because if you already suffer pain for maybe more than a year, mm. then some of the biomarkers are not important anymore uh, because they are much more caused by the disease mm. uh, and they might not be the cause of the disease, but, might, uh, but, but maybe the other way around. So also thinking about the time window that you should include patients in relation to, for example, biomarkers is a very important step, I think, about which we should think about much more carefully than we are doing now. I, I want to ask you about a study that you were involved in uh, six years ago, I think. Uh, I think I'm pronouncing the lead author's name correctly, Van Helvoort. Yeah. At Al. Um, and uh, just to briefly summarize for the listeners, although I'll, I'll put a summary in the newsletter as well. The study found that using uh, injections for people, people with sciatica um, in combination with McKenzie directional treatment uh, helped people to avoid surgery. And, you know, in particularly interesting that uh, after an injection, kind of retesting whether people centralize, they found that people who often the injection seemed to help people centralize. I haven't summarized that very well. Maybe you want to do it better than me. But I was curious about um, your uh, impressions of that study and how, how strong you think the outcome is and how much we can use it to guide our practice. Yeah, we used that study actually. That was kind of a very pragmatic study because in those days when the study kind of was designed, there were long waiting lists and it was very frustrating for patients and that is when that research team uh, kind of came up with this study and they asked patients, well, while you're on the waiting list, which could take a couple of months before you get surgery in those days, um, we can offer you an alternative. And that is this combination therapy of uh, McKenzie therapy and injection therapy. And because it was only in one hospital with one back clinic who did the intervention, um, I think that uh, maybe the, the, the figures of the surgeries prevented in that study uh, are maybe not really representative of, you know, all patients because I think the generalizability is a bit of an issue there. Mm. At the same time, I think that the 
or even more, we really thought uh, that the results were, although maybe an overestimation, but still they were rather substantial. Mm. And therefore, we were also able to really uh, convince the, the Dutch granting agency that we should do a big study. And that is actually what we are doing right now. We are in the final stages of that study ah. where we really would like to uh, include all the patients that have an indication for surgery and then ask those patients, well, while you're on the waiting list, uh, we can offer you nothing and just mm -hmm. you are on the waiting list for a couple of weeks or we can offer you the combination therapy and that might have the advantage that you don't have to go to the surgery. Uh, we are now in the final stages of that study so you can also see sometimes how long it takes from a pilot study <laughs> to the full-scale RCT, uh, probably in, somewhere in Q1, beginning of Q2 next year, we have results. Hey, that's fantastic. That's something to look forward to. Um, when I spoke to Mark Laslett, he, he pointed out that study is particularly useful. Um, and as you say, it's very pragmatic and gives you an idea of something that you can, you can really do yeah. to hopefully help people uh, will look forward to the results of the bigger study. Yeah, but um, you should be a bit cautiously yeah. when interpreting that study and, and not interpret it too <laughs> over-optimistic because, mm -hmm. again, there was, there was no control group. Um, and I think there was certainly some selection of patients who were willing to go for that therapy. Mm -hmm. um, it was one clinic only. Uh, so... So those those are the caveats, I would say. But 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 again, we also thought ourselves like uh, this is probably a bit more than just a trivial effect, and it's a bit difficult to to kind of uh, to to think that that effect that we found in that study is really only due to a chance. Uh, so that's why why we're doing now the big study, mm -hmm. and hopefully we can give you some answers. Uh, yeah. Well, I look forward to those. And you know, your point is well taken about the, the limitations of the original study as well. We're, we're coming towards the end of the kind of time that we have. So I want to ask you one last question about another particular study. And I hope I'm pronouncing the lead author's name correctly, Luigi de Berg. Um, I'm sorry, say that again. Luigi de Berg. Okay. <laughs> it wasn't even close. Um, don't worry, I'll edit that. I'll, I'll, I'll put it in afterwards and make it sound like Not I said it correctly first time. Um, what was it going to say? Just in general, your impressions, but in particular about the, um, uh, let's see, retrospective analysis that suggested that people with high levels of kinesiophobia might benefit. Um, how much do you think we can take from the findings of, of those, those studies? Yeah, probably I think that is, uh, of, of course, you, again, the, the researcher in you always urges you to be uh, <laughs> with the subgroup analysis. But, but you know, uh, having said that, I indeed think that those kind of subgroup analysis, they showed some interesting results. And that is also now uh, included because it was a study that compared uh, general practice versus physiotherapy. And overall, there wasn't a very tremendous difference. And I think the main reason for that is that also the GPs uh, kind of gave the advice to patients to stay active. And, mm -hmm. and that 
also they were already held and then that's uh, were told to be active i mean and thereby the contrast between the two treatment arms was probably not as big as we hoped that it would be but this uh, observation that the patients with uh, higher levels of kinesiophobia are probably better off if they get a bit more supervision and a bit more guidance and a bit more explanation mm-hmm. um, that is also now really included in the gp guidelines uh, or in, at least in the netherlands where the guideline prescribes uh, or advises i should say that patients uh, in general they don't really need a prescription for physiotherapies mm. unless you think that a patient really is you know too anxious to move or that a patient really needs a bit more attention because he cannot you know really practice himself or that you really think that this patient might get a bit of a, a support in 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 getting a bit more back to daily activities um and again this observation of uh, the uh, patients with higher levels of kinesiophobia is also now really seen as an indication for a bit more guidance by a physiotherapist i think basically because as a physio you do have more time to engage with the patient to really go into more depth mm-hmm. in terms of discussing what exactly is the patient afraid of what what are the ideas the patient have so in other words i think if physio is very well situated in the care path at least in the netherlands and much more than a gp to really discuss uh, and to really communicate these issues together with the patient yeah that's great thank you and as i say we're coming to the end of the, the time that we have do you feel like you've um we've kind of got to the heart of the matter today do you, do you feel like you've explained um you know, we've covered the important topics. So is there anything in particular that you think we've, we've left out, Raymond? Um, yeah, may- maybe um, I think an important issue that I think is very important and that it's probably not just for sciatica, but also for back pain and neck pain, maybe even for physiotherapy in general, is that this whole idea about treatment adherence is very often neglected and also in the trials um you know we read a lot or sometimes not so much <laughs> details so many details but sometimes uh, we read quite some details about how the intervention looks like how the intention is intervention is meant to be mm. but we struggle i think a great deal with trying to tease out what exactly was done mm-hmm. um uh, because we know that that especially these um active lifestyle recommendations and the and, and, and the recommendations regarding exercises that many patients actually struggle with them. Um, because, for example, the exercises don't really fit into their daily schedule or they kind of struggle with how and when to do the exercises and that kind of stuff. And therefore, uh, when you look at the literature, we see that adherence to treatment very often is, is well, suboptimal to put it mildly yeah, yeah. Uh, and i think that it's of course clear that if you don't exercise how then can you assess the effectiveness of interval of mm-hmm. exercising properly i mean it's the same for me as when you assess taking medication but if patients don't take the medication what are you assessing then in the first place mm-hmm. uh, and the same goes for i think treatment adherence it's it's really a very important uh, topic and 
unfortunately, we don't know too much about it. Mm. It's kind of the elephant in the room. And I'm certainly guilty as a consumer of research of forgetting about the adherence issue. Um, it's kind of, it's, it's nice as a, as a reader to imagine that the, the trial, everyone's done what they were asked to do and everything's perfect. Um, <laughs> it doesn't work like that. question already, I think, makes you aware of the fact that saying uh, 100% yes to that question, that is probably mm. easier, isn't it? <laughs> Um, so I, I, to me, that really is a very important uh, issue that we struggle with because we also, in terms of research, we don't really know how to measure it. And therefore, we also don't now really uh, know how to assess methods or strategy to improve the treatment adherence. Um, but I think that is a very important uh, issue. And a second important issue to me is also we talk about reassurance as if it was very simple, as like, you mm -hmm. know, just tap on the shoulder and say, I oh, just reassure the patient. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the qualitative studies that are coming out and the systematic reviews of qualitative studies, we see that very often patients are well quite frustrated with the consultations that they get from their healthcare providers in primary care. And one of the reasons is, I think, obvious that if you cannot really explain where the pain comes from appropriately, and that's what patients want, they want to know where does the pain come from, and you say, oh, we don't know, but you, know, you can just exercise. Mm -hmm. But if you're really this anxious person, and then your physio or your GP or whoever is telling you, well, I haven't got a clue where this pain comes from, but it's safe to move. I mean, how does that work in 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 the, in the minds of patients, if you cannot really tell them what's going on, but you do know it's safe to move. So in other words, this whole topic about, I mean, that's, I think, probably the number one recommendations in many clinical guidelines to reassure the patient. But how, mm. how do we really reassure patient in an appropriate way so that we really reassure patients so that patients really come out of clinical practice really leave your practice and that they really feel much more reassured than they were before um, so that's the second topic i think that we really should pay much more attention to because it's, it's it's a difficult topic we don't know how to measure it and therefore we also struggle with how to assess it mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so yeah it's certainly between that and adherence to really interesting topics to think about and, and take away from the conversation. I've really enjoyed this, Raymond. I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, I'm looking forward to listening back to it. I think I've already got a lot of value from it because you, you've helped to, as, you, as I was hoping at the beginning, clarify certain things that I was uncertain about, but also helped me to <laughs> kind of feel better about the things that I was uncertain about, if that makes sense. Um, so it's all about kind of navigating those waters. So I really appreciate your time. Uh, and I know that the listeners all have enjoyed that as well. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Take care. Goodbye. Take care.